Well, hello and welcome to Trinity. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Jeff. I am so pumped for this message because I love transformation stories. We're in a series called Disruptive Grace, how God can disrupt our lives, take us out of our current kind of trajectory and move us. And in that disruption, as we experience His grace, there's a transformation that happens. And I love movies. I love books. I love TV shows. I love podcasts. Anything that deals with transformative stories in people's lives is something that always grabs my attention. And it's something God has been doing for thousands of years. And we're going to look at a woman thousands of years ago whose life was totally transformed. But before we jump into the text, I want to bring us up to speed in terms of where we're at. We're going to talk about a woman named Rahab. Um, She lived in a city. It was kind of a military stronghold called Jericho. Now, at this time, this was thousands of years ago, God's people were known as the Israelites. If you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the faith, let me bring you up to speed. God's people were called the Israelites. They started with a man named Abraham, and he starts to grow his family, and then God's people comes out and from Abraham's line. And eventually they end up in Egypt, and they are enslaved in Egypt. This is around the time of Moses. Many of you know this story. And they escape from Egypt and they head across the Red Sea and it parts and they go into the wilderness. And then the people are in the wilderness and they're heading towards the promised land, the land that God has promised to bring his people into. And as they're heading in the wilderness, during the day they're led by a cloud and at night they're led by um, a, a flame and they're, they get hungry, and God provides manna on the ground, where literally they're, they're scooping up bread from the ground and eating it. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments, this way, this picture of how um, God's people are supposed to live. And all the while, the people are grumbling. Man, we had meat back in Egypt. Let's go back and be enslaved. They're doubting, but they're moving forward. And it, we, they come to the promised land. So picture this. You have the whole, um, all the clans, the 12 tribes of Israel at the edge of the promised land. And they're looking in. They send 12 people to look into the promised land. And they look and they come back to report. And they go, man, the people are huge in there. There's no way we can defeat them. And because of their lack of faith, God punishes them and sends them back into the wilderness for 40 years. He sends them back until all the people that had come out of Egypt died and all their offspring had grown up. And it was those people that he's now going to bring into the promised land. And they're led by a man named Joshua. Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. So Joshua is ready to lead the armies of Israel into the promised land. But before they do that, he's going to send two spies He's going to send two spies into this military stronghold, this city called Jericho, to to feel out the land, to get to know the people, to understand what's going on before they are going to try and take Jericho. So this is where we begin, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along. Joshua, I think it's the sixth or seventh book in the Bible. It's near the beginning. Um, Joshua 2, verse 1. It'll be on the screen in front of you. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. 
And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they, went, where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. It's Joshua 2, 1 through 14. This is the word of God. Now we are, like I mentioned, we're in a series, uh, Disrupted Grace. This is week four. And this previous three weeks, we looked at three specific individuals. We first looked at Zacchaeus, Gideon, and Mary. And in each of these stories, we see how God's disruption displaces them and sets them on a new path, a new journey. But these people are not who you would expect to be people to be used significantly by God. You look at them and go, really? Them? I mean, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He literally stole money from his own people. Then he has this encounter with Jesus to, in, to such a degree that he gives away half of his, ink, of his wealth and he pays back all of his debts. His life is disrupted and transformed. Gideon was a leader in Israel, but he was kind of a coward. In fact, the Midianites were persecuting the Israelites. And, and when the Lord came to Gideon, he was hiding. And the Lord said, no, come on out. And the Lord led him and 300 men to defeat the Midianites. And then finally we come to Mary, an insignificant peasant girl who, re- who receives this encounter with an angel whose life is dramatically disrupted. She's about to be married. She thinks about her life to come. And all of a sudden it's like, no, you are going to be pregnant by the Spirit and you will be the mother of the Messiah. These incredible disruptions, a tax collector, a coward, an, in- an insignificant peasant girl, and today a prostitute. And we say that and you kind of go, whoa, that one feels a little too far, doesn't it? And not just a woman of ill repute, a Canaanite. 
Now we know a lot about the Canaanites. They were the people living in the promised land at the time. They're mentioned many times in the Bible and never in a positive light. They worshiped idols. They had many gods. They were polytheists. Um, They were impure in every sense of the word and, and even practiced child sacrifice to their gods. They were an evil group of people. So when we look at the person of Rahab as we begin our, our time today, we see a person that on the totem pole of morality is about as low as you can go. In other words, I would wager that you've never met another person named Rahab. So I have two daughters, eight and five, and we named them, not intentionally, but we ended up naming them Hebraic names, Hannah and Abby. But guess what name was never on the table? Rahab, right? She is low on the totem pole. If we look at who she is, her life, where she lives, how she grew up, what she does for a living. And this is what makes her incredible. Her story is so incredible. Let's jump in. Verse one. Oh, if you're taking notes, two points today. The first one is a diamond in the rough. First point, a diamond in the rough. So, Joshua sends these two spies into Jericho and they, it says they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And you might stop and go, that sounds weird. These Israelite spies, these men who are following God, go into the house of a prostitute. Now back there culturally, the prostitute would, would have been more, the house of the prostitute would have been more like a way station, a tavern. If you think about like the taverns back in the Wild West, Um, So they would have gone in there. They would have been able to stay there. Um, A lot of people are passing through those way stations, so information would have been passed. They would have been a little bit, flow a little bit under the radar as they snuck into Jericho. But apparently, if we continue on to verse 2, Joshua didn't exactly send uh, Jason Bourne or James Bond into Jericho. These don't seem to be the best spies. So he sends the spies in verse 1. And if you look at verse 2, someone comes and tells the king that the men of Israel have come to search out the land tonight. So they've been in there one night, it appears, and they're already, the cover is already blown. And then the king of Jericho goes to Rahab. I'm just going to summarize really quickly and says, hey, these men came to you. Um, They're coming to search out the land. Bring them to me. But she's hidden them. And she lies and says, no, no, they were here. I didn't know who they were, but I sent them on their way. They went through the gate and most likely back across the Jordan, back to their people. And so the king sends men to pursue them. She ends up hiding them up on the roof. It says that she hid them with these stalks of flax. And what that is, is flax is kind of like a long, a, a long piece of grass that when it dried, this fiber would come out and it would spread apart and they'd pull the fiber off. So she took them on the roof, put that over them. I imagine they went up and probably looked around, and these spies are hiding under, under the flax. Again, countless opportunities for Rahab to give them up, um, but she chooses not to. Why does she do this? Well, it's a question I asked as I read through this a couple times. Like, why, why does she not give up the spies who are here to... to eventually invade her city. And I think the clues come in the next handful of verses. Uh, Kind of the heart of the passage that we're going to dig into. Let's read that because some of her words are so profound and so powerful here. Um, This is starting in verse 8. 
So before the men lay down, before they went to bed, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord our God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is an amazing statement, especially from the mouth of a foreigner. She affirms first in verses 9 and 10, that God has given the land to the Israelites, the land she grew up in, the land currently occupied by the Canaanites. She, she acknowledges that this land has been given to them. They've heard of what they did in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. Remember, this was 40 years ago. So they would have no doubt known about the Israelites in the wilderness, and now there is great fear because there's been word that they are coming up and they're going to overtake the land. And she goes further and digs deeper here in her understanding. And she says this, The Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now we might hear that, heaven above, earth beneath, and go, yeah, of course. I've known that most of my life. I've read that in the Bible. I've heard that from different people. But remember who she is. She's a Canaanite. She didn't have the Torah, right? She didn't have the Hebrew scriptures. She was not learning under any sort of teachers. She was a polytheist. She grew up in an irreligious, pagan culture. And yet she acknowledges the Lord is God, He is God. So first off, she acknowledges that there is one God. He is God. Again, this flies in the face of who her people were. And then secondly, her words become even more significant when she makes this phrase, in heavens above and earth below. It's only found three times prior in the Bible. And in all contexts, what it does is it affirms God's exclusive claims to sovereignty. In other words, these three verses claim that God is the ruler over all, that God is the ultimate authority, the ultimate power in the heavens and the earth. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 5, 8. It's the same verse quoted twice. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. So she's, this is about idol worship, something that her people were, was a regular part of their practice. And she's saying, no, he is the God of heaven above and earth beneath. There are no idols. There are no other gods. And then also, Deuteronomy 4.39 writes, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. These are amazing claims that this Canaanite prostitute is making to these men. There is one God and he is ruler over all. And I think as we hear these words, we can't escape their implications. She's not just trying to save her skin. She's acknowledging that this one God, this true God, out of the dozens and dozens of gods that she would have known as a Canaanite, 
was worthy of worship, allegiance, and even death, right? Because she put her life on the line by housing these spies, by hiding them, by lying to the king's men, by sending them off, saying you will pursue them, but knowing that they're not going to find them. And if they return and discover she was lying, her and her family's life would be in grave danger. But how does she know all this? I mean, how does she have this insight? And the, the honest answer is we don't really know. Maybe an angel talked to her. Maybe a messenger came. Maybe she, they somehow received parts of the Ten Commandments or read the Ten Commandments. All we know is that to her core, her heart was opened. She realized the truth. And she believed in who this God is. She's the epitome of a diamond in the rough. On the outside, you would look at her and go, there is no way that she would be a child of God. There's no way that, but on the inside, which is where God looks, her heart is opened and she understands the truth. John Owen, who's a 17th century century, uh, British theologian, he says, Rahab is a blessed example both of the sovereignty of God's grace and of its power, of its freedom and sovereignty. In the calling and conversion of a person given up through her choice to the vilest of sins, nobody, no sin, should lead to despair when the cure of God's sovereign, almighty grace is engaged. Nobody. Because salvation is free to all who would respond. It is not based on our works. It's not based on our past. It's not based on our job. It's not based on our family. It's a gift of God, and we see this gift here. See, God always saves diamonds in the rough. I would say he only saves diamonds in the rough. For those of us that have been a part of the church for maybe most of our life, have been a Christian for a bunch of years, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget that at one point we were alienated from God. At one point we, at one point we were like these Canaanites. We were enemies of God, the Bible says. But we've been brought into his family because of Jesus. We've been welcomed in. Leads us to our second point. If you're taking notes, welcome to the family. Let's finish up our passage here. Rahab says this, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So Rahab makes this deal. She saves the life of her and her family. And if you read the story further, what happens is they go back, Israel invades, they walk around Jericho seven times, the walls fall down, but Rahab puts a a scarlet cord outside of her window, and anybody in that room was saved. So all of her family is brought out of there and welcomed into the family of the Israelites, right? Welcomed to become part of their family. Her faith saves her and her family. And 
I mean, we, there's a tendency to look at this and go, what an incredible story. Amazing story of how she's helped God's people. Amazing story how God opened her heart, saved her and her family, and leave it at that. But what's incredible is that Rahab is not forgotten in the Bible. There's two specific places that she's mentioned in the New Testament. And I want to look at those briefly. The first is Hebrews chapter 11. That's a famous chapter in the Bible, commonly known as the Hall of Heroes or the Faith chapter. And essentially, I want to encourage you to go read Hebrews 11. It's basically just a history of God's people and the faith that's exhibited by these great men and women. It talks about the faith of Abraham, the faith of Isaac, the faith of Sarah, on and on, these giants of our faith. And in 1131, it says this, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She is in this hall of faith or this um, hall of heroes, this faith chapter. She is among the giants of the faith, not because of the, how much she did, but because of the faith that she exhibited. I mean, it's incredible if you think about it. It'd be like if all of a sudden I miraculously got some incredible basketball skills and made the Hall of Fame. And it'd be like, in the NBA, we've got Russell, we've got Jordan, we've got Magic, we've got Larry, we've got Brucker. And you'd be like, wait, who? Right? It doesn't fit. I, I, I wouldn't fit next to those guys in the Hall of Fame. And you look at Rahab and you go, none of that really makes sense unless what God was looking at was on the inside, was looking at the heart. One more place where she's at, in Matthew 1, the very the first page of the New Testament, there's a list of the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. And it starts with, um, it starts with Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, on and on. And if you get to verse 5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. So Rahab and her family were welcomed in to the nation of Israel. She was given to one of their sons as a wife. She had children. And she became the great, great, great grandmother of David. Think about this. This Canaanite prostitute is the great, great, great grandmother of King David. And furthermore, we know that King David is, in a, direct, is a direct descendant of Jesus. So this Canaanite woman's descendants is the savior of the world. This is such a clear picture of the mission of God, to come and seek and save what is lost. An insignificant woman like this in this foreign, godless country is brought into God's family and has such a significant role in, in him saving this world. That's why Rahab is one of my favorite people in the Bible. It's one of the most encouraging stories in the Bible. And it lets me know, man, if, if God can save her, there is hope for everyone, myself included. I want to tell a quick story. There's a pastor who passed away a couple years ago named Tony Campolo, fiery, uh, fiery pastor. And I heard him at a conference tell this story once. 
he flew to Hawaii to speak at a church or a conference, something similar to that. And because of the time change, he couldn't sleep. So he'd go down to this 24-hour diner. And at 4 a.m., all these women would come in. They were, their shift was over, right? They were off work for the night, um, similar to Rahab. And they'd come in and they'd get breakfast. And he ended up talking to one and found out that the next day was her birthday and asked her what she's doing. And she kind of replied, well, nothing. I've actually never had a birthday party in her entire life which cues us in a little bit on who she is and how she was raised. So Campolo, after they leave, devises this plan to throw her a birthday party, works with the manager of the restaurant, and the next day, 4 a.m., women come back, and there's balloons, and there's a cake, and there are presents for her, and they sing happy birthday, and she gets the first ever birthday party that she's ever had in her life. A message that God loves her. And I think this is, this is the heart of the gospel, that God loves you regardless of your past, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've done. He knows it all, and yet he still longs to say, come, be a part of my family. You remember what the men said to Rahab when she asked to be saved? Joshua 2.14, they said to her, our life for yours, even to death. How does God respond when we ask, man, I long to be saved? Points to Jesus who says what? My life for yours, even to death. Death on the cross. Your story doesn't have to define you because God wants to transform you through Jesus, and invite you to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Rahab. Someone we can clearly look and go, she doesn't deserve all that she was given. And then we look at our own hearts and go, we don't deserve all that we have been given. So we thank you for your grace. We praise you for the transformation that happens in our lives solely because of your deep love your grace in our hearts. We thank you for Jesus that through his sacrifice on the cross, his forgiving of our sins, we can be a part of your family now and forever more. What a gift to never take for granted. May this push us to love those that are outside of the church, that are outside of your loving grace, knowing that you can and will and long to save those who are lost. So we thank you for who you are. We pray for a great rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.